There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. My name is Julia Wheeler, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome one of Britain's best-selling authors. Claire McIntosh's debut novel, I Let You Go, was a Sunday Times top 10 bestseller and selected for the Richard and Judy Book Club. It sold more than a million copies worldwide. I See You followed to great acclaim, and Claire's latest, Let Me Lie, has been described by fellow author Marion Keyes as her best yet. What surely contributes to making these psychological thrillers so real and so compelling is Claire's 12-year service in the police force, including time in CID. To talk about Let Me Lie together with just how much true-life crime feeds into her novels, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Claire McIntosh. So your detective in this is a chap Mm. called Murray, who is lovely. He's very much gut instinct, and I wonder how much, in terms of your policing, you were instinct first and evidence later, like he is. I I think I I was less instinct and more emotion so so what drove me in in the police were the human stories behind the crime so whether that was speaking to a victim of crime or someone who had witnessed a crime or someone who had committed a crime it was the the story of what had driven them to that point and what was going to happen afterwards and so very much about the people and I I think there's probably quite a lot of of me in in Murray although we're very different characters so Murray uh, McKenzie is Um, a retired police officer. He's actually not a police officer at all anymore, but he did his 30 years in the police and most of that as a detective. And then when he retired, and retired very young, as as, um, his, his generation of police officers tended to do, he wasn't ready to sit about doing nothing. And so he came back to work as a civilian um, support staff. So he, he was working on the, the front counter of a police station, uh, helping out the, the police, um, but can't quite let go of that need to solve mysteries and that need to solve stories. Is that you too? I haven't quite let go of that desire to to listen to people's stories and to, to find them. And so if I hadn't become a writer, I think that would have left quite a big void when I left the police. I I, I suspect I would have always found something that had a a degree of storytelling in it. Mm. Did you feel then that your your identity as a police... I mean, like lots of us, when you you move jobs or you um, perhaps uh, you come to a different time in your life, you become a mother or something like that... um, that that identity changes, and so it was a it was a difficult time between oh, leaving really the police and, uh, yeah. and becoming you know the famous author. Yeah, really hard. I, um, I I think so much of our identity is bound up in what we do for a living, which is a, a terrible state of affairs. But it's reflected in in the questions that we ask when you meet people at social events. Almost the first question you ask after you've introduced yourself is, "What do you do?" And it's I find it slightly depressing that we don't ask, you know, what, what's your passion? What are your hobbies? What drives you in life? We, we ask, you know, what do you spend your working day doing, which is really the dullest part of us. Um, and, but, but that's the way it is. And so my identity was very much bound up in, in that warrant card. And when I handed it in, I, I, I cried. I, I, I wasn't quite sure who I was. Um, and, and it was really that, that that drove me on to to write so that I could I, I could be something I could have something that that was mine, um, although it was a very long time before I called myself a, a writer so why did you give up that Warren card well that 's a story in itself um, so i i 'd been promoted a couple of times uh, to inspector, and I was working very very hard and um, I was very focused, very driven. I wanted to get promoted again and again. I wanted to be in a position to change some of the ways in which I felt we, we didn't police very well. Um, and so I, I was sort of quite politically driven. Um, and as part of my preparation for my chief inspector rank, I had to do something called a 360-degree assessment where you send out a questionnaire to all the people you work with and they fill it out and send it back and you end up with a report of exactly what your peers and your subordinates and your bosses think of you. It's terrifying. It's, a, it's like walking through the canteen naked. It's the most hideous <laughs> thing you, you can do. 
But I was ready for it, and I knew I had to do it, and I knew I would learn from it. And so I did this, and when the report came back, and I, I'd been really dreading it, and I braced myself for it, and I read it, and it was great. Like, it was really, really good. And obviously, there were developmental things, but it, it was full of people saying that I, I had energy, and my door was always open, and I listened, and I acted, and I was responsive, and I was a, you know, a good boss, and a good colleague, and a great person to work with. Um, and I was so proud and slightly smug about it that I took it home to show my husband. And he read it, uh, and he smiled, and he said, yeah, this is great. Who's this woman? I don't think I know her. Uh, and it was, you know, he was very kind and very gentle about it, but it was a, a real defining moment for me because it, it reinforced what secretly I knew already, which was that I was using all the best bits of me for work and giving my family the leftovers. And I know I'm not alone in, in doing that, and many of you in this room will at, at times have been nicer to your work colleagues than you are to your family. Um, but it, it was... I got to a point where I thought, I, that's, this is all wrong. I, I, this isn't the, the wife I want to be. It isn't the mother I want to be. I, I want to be more present. I want to be um, you know, a, a nicer person. Um, of course, the irony is that I'm always away now with, with books, and so I, I might need that 360-degree feedback to be done again. <laughs> we could do that later. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you... And how long did it take them from going home with that piece of paper to you actually leaving? It was, it was pretty quick. I mean, we had... We had a discussion about it kind of, you know, then and there, um, and it was quite emotional for a few weeks, and I was really scared. I still needed to earn, and if I didn't earn, we wouldn't be able to pay the bills. Uh, and so it was really scary, and I would have to be carried to a certain extent by my husband, and so it was very much a, a joint decision. And I think if he had been scared as well and worried about me doing it, then I don't think I would have done it. But he was so supportive. And when I said, you know, I think I can make a living from writing. That's what I want to try and do. I can do it at home. I can do it around the kids. I, I'm going to take this career break and, and see, you know, let's give it two years and see if I can keep us afloat, um, you know, keep my bit of us afloat. Um, and he was 100% behind me. And that confidence, that faith in me was tremendously encouraging uh, as, as I started on this, this new career. Mm. So I guess the police force is completely through you in terms of you understand the, the sort of anthropology of a police station and you know how things work yeah, and whatever. I think whatever. so. I think so. And I, I mean, it's been, it's been years now since I wore a uniform, but... I, um, I'm, I still do that thing where when I'm talking about the police, I say we, even though I, I've not been a police officer since 2011. Mm. But I do think it sort of gets into your veins. So in terms of research, was there that much that you had to do or was it more thinking about, OK, how do I put a book together? A, a little bit of, of both. The, the research, the police research that I've needed to do has increased for each book, and that's partly because I stayed in my comfort zone with the first book. So there was very little, uh, there was a little bit of traffic knowledge. Um, I Let You Go, my first book is, is about a hit and run. And um, my husband used to be uh, on, on roads policing, among other jobs, and so that was really useful. But then each book that's followed, I've gone into different departments, I, I, you know, areas that I don't know as much about. And also, I'm, I'm that bit further. I'm another year away from being an operational police officer. And I'm very conscious that things change very quickly. And I don't, I don't want to be writing about things that have moved on, um, because that, that would, would take away that layer of authenticity that, that I, you know, I, I feel my books have. But I, for me, it's, it's, less about, it's less about the detail, the, the sort of the procedure and the accuracy of, of knowing that sort of thing, because that's, um, those are details that you can research. You, you can watch documentaries and you can talk to police officers. It's more about the atmosphere. And I think that ex-police officers who write crime, and there are quite a few of us, um, we, we, we have the edge... In, in terms of describing things like the way police officers talk or how they feel about their workload or how they feel at the end of a day or how a custody, how a cell door sounds when it slams and, and echoes, that, that feeling is very difficult to replicate unless you've been there. Mm. So in terms of um, 
the choices that you make as a writer in, in this book. Um, I mean, it's really, it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's page, I mean, obviously it's a page, and right to the last page. Um, but you have made very specific choices in that Murray's story is told third person yep. past, and Anna, her story is told first person, first person present. present. So yeah. why do you do that? I've, I've done that in all my books, actually, and, and um, it... There are a couple of reasons. Firstly, I think that changing the point of view, uh, the perspective that you're writing from, makes it a lot more interesting for, for the reader, and it changes the energy as, as you go through, through the book. It also makes it much clearer whose story you're, you're in, and so you're not doing that thing where you're, you're halfway through a page of a chapter and you think, oh, hang on, which character is this? And you have to check back. So, so that's a kind of a practical thing. But it's also about the way I want the story to present itself. So I, I, I want the reader to put themselves in the shoes of um, what used to be called, years and years ago, used to be called the woman in peril, um, which is a, a very sort of quaint term we don't really use anymore, but I quite like it. But the, the, the victim who, uh, whose life is in jeopardy, who is in this dangerous situation and um, uh, facing this threat, and to use first-person present is such an immediate way of putting the reader absolutely in that character's shoes. So they are seeing and hearing and thinking every terrifying thing that, that happens, it makes it very immediate and very fast-paced. Using third person and third person past for, uh, for, for my detective characters, which is what I do through all my books, is um, it, it gives it a slight feeling of objectivity that an investigator needs to have. So when you're on CID and you're, you're working a, a case, you're not you shouldn't be emotionally involved in that. You shouldn't be looking at it from the inside and kind of getting all caught in the weeds. You should be taking this sort of bird's eye view of things so that you can remain much more objective about it. And so uh, as a reader, you, you can read Murray's chapters and you can put yourself in that role of detective and see the situation with the same amount of objectivity. Mm, but do there, there are also limitations, aren't there, to... to Writing in the present tense. There, well, there are. I mean, there are limitations. I mean, technical limitations. Yeah, there, there are. There, there are limitations. It, you know, whatever you you choose, and certainly when you write in in the the first person, you you can only report on what's happening through the eyes of that person. And so, if there's something in the next room, you know, that that's tough. Uh, and so, it is it is slightly limiting. But but I quite like that because I I like the fact that the reader uncovers things at the same pace as. The, the woman in peril. Mm. And the other thing that you do, which is difficult to put off, is the second person as well. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. Well, it's actually... So it's, when you're saying you... Yeah, it's actually yeah. not... It's not strict second person because um, I, I've just read a book that's entirely second person, actually, where, where the reader is the character. Um, and I, I found it quite quite difficult to, to get through. What I, what I tend to do is I have a character who is speaking directly to the reader, so addressing you in a rather unsettling way. Uh, and again, it's, it's, um, you know, it's partly about changing the pace and it's, uh, it's partly about pulling the reader into the story and, um, and, and making, making you work a bit. You, know, you, you can't just sit there and, and enjoy a book. You've, you've got to work and, and see if you can find out who, who the baddie is and what's going to happen. Mm. So that all makes it very complicated, I should imagine, in terms of plotting. How yes. do you go about making sure that you've got all the right bits in all the right places? Yeah, I am, I am a real plotter uh, and I'm in awe of, of people like um, Ian Rankin, who, who I know has had a couple of sessions here, who will just sit down and, and write a book with no no uh, thought about where it's going or who the, the, the good guys and the bad guys are. I, if I try and do that, it it just takes me forever. I, I need to have some kind of route map, even if I take some diversions along the way. So for me, I, I, I plot it out in advance. I spend a lot of time working on character and setting and, and kind of themes first. And then I work out the shape of the novel. I work out the highs and the lows and where I want the twists to come and roughly how many twists I want. And generally, I start a book knowing one big twist that's going to happen and then by the time I finished there are you know two three four however many there end up and is there a professional pride to having a, a surprise on the last page don't anybody read it do not turn to the last page 
professional, professional pride. pride. I, I, I just, I, I like, I like being a bit mean to readers. I think, and and thinking that they're on the kind of you know the easy way down from the roller coaster, and then going up. Oh, there yeah. we go again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a little bit of that uh, sort of game playing, um, and also the fact that real life is is not neat and tidy. You, you know, in all the, the cases I, I dealt with as a police officer, and in and all my my sort of um, you know crises that I've I've had as as a private individual, it, there's no there's no final chapter. Life life goes on. You 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 arrest someone and put them in prison, they've got a life, they've got you know, a future to try and make um, in prison and when they come out, the victim of that crime is going to live with the consequences of that for the rest of their life. There's no the end for, mm -hmm. for them. And so I quite like it when books have a tiny bit of ambiguity that remind us that there's, there's more to come. Mm. You love an unreliable narrator. And I, I wonder do. whether part of that comes from sitting across... Um, the interview table mm. with people who sort of necessarily are not always obviously innocent until proven guilty and all that but um, they are unreliable narrators aren't they really you've heard a lot well, in your they, time yeah they are but it's not it's not just it's not just suspects it's it's witnesses as well and victims you know the, the there are a, a huge number of victims who don't necessarily tell the, the truth about what's happened uh, and there are loads of witnesses who who think they're being reliable narrators you know we if, if a murder happened right now in this room which I very much hope it won't you would all need you'd all be witnesses you would all need to give statements and they would all be slightly different and and that would make you unreliable in, you know, in a certain sense of the word. And some of you might be deliberately holding things back because you might be worried about your involvement in it. And others might think you're telling the truth, but actually you saw something you know, happen that wasn't quite right. And so I guess what I'm doing with unreliable narrators is just reflecting what happens in real life um, with a little bit of experience of what people look like when they're telling lies and how they sound and what it does to them as, as people. Okay, so how do they look and sound? I'm not telling, I'm not giving away all my <laughs> secrets. Oh, go on. I don't think it's as simple as the, um, you know, the, 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 there's a bit of a trope that you all look, to the, look up and to the left if you're telling a lie. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Um, but I do, uh, um, I think it's, it's always interesting to see that somebody that's, that's telling a, a lie that they've really thought about will often be significantly more detailed and accurate than someone who's telling the truth because they're so obsessed about getting their story right that they'll give far more detail than someone actually mm -hmm. who, who is telling the truth. So I'm always slightly suspicious if someone gives me a lot of detail. It's like when the kids say, you know, yeah, yeah I absolutely cleaned my teeth. I put lots of toothpaste on mm -hmm. and I brushed for two minutes and then I rinsed and I think, no, you've not cleaned your teeth at all. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think then when, pe when police officers who've also had that experience of reading, they can, they can sort of see that within your writing because you're either subconsciously or consciously planting those sorts of, of clues in? Uh, yeah, I think so. Well, whether it, it's actually it tends to be less the police officers that, that tell me that. Um, it's more about other crime writers because police officers, uh, unless they're they're writers as well or they read a lot of crime fiction, they don't tend to analyse the books they're reading. They're reading for entertainment. But other other crime writers who you know know the tricks, they'll they'll be looking for them. And so the biggest compliment is when um, when a fellow author hasn't guess my twists and so with when my first book came out um, I let you go and I was so nervous and I'd worked on it for such a long time and written seven eight drafts of it before it went out and by the time we were on the final draft I was so sick of it and and the twist seemed so incredibly obvious that I just thought this is ridiculous we're putting a book out here that that has you know a twist that's staring us in the face and it went too authors before it went to anyone else to kind of test the waters. It went to Peter James and it went to Mark Billingham. Um, and both of them came back within a few days, Peter James saying, this is outstanding, um, you know, absolutely got me. And Mark Billingham saying, I am so jealous. I didn't think Fantastic. of that twist. So did you have that as that, a cover relaxed. quote? We did. Did yeah, you? Did. <laughs> um, so when you were um, in the police force, were you sort of well, when you were in the police force and afterwards, how much have you drawn on individual 
cases that you either worked on or, or heard about and incorporated those into your books? Less than one might expect, I think, because actually I feel slightly uncomfortable about the idea of taking somebody's tragedy, someone's trauma, and using it directly for entertainment. And so although I'm certainly inspired by real-life cases, the, the only one that has a, a direct parallel is, um, is I Let You Go, which was inspired by a hit-and-run that, that had happened in Oxford. Um, but even then, the, the actual story bears no relation to, to the, the real-life story. It was simply that, that the hit-and-run that happened made me think about how that would feel. It made me think about why someone would drive away knowing that they'd killed a child and never come forward. And it made me think about how uh, it would feel for a mother to lose their child and, and to, to have no, no closure for that. So I didn't write about the real-life people or, or the real-life case. And since then, I see you, my second book, which is about stalking on, on the underground and... Um, about the, the fact that we're all creatures of habit, so we tend to do the same thing day in, day out, because it's very reassuring. We'll go the same way to work, we'll put the bins out at the same time, we'll take the dog the, the same route. And, um, and, of course, if we do the same thing every day, we become very predictable, and that's very dangerous, because if you know what you're doing tomorrow, someone else knows it too. And so in writing that... I drew on the, the people that I've spoken to over the years who had been victims of harassment and, and stalking, um, which is often seen as, you know, it, it can be seen as a very minor thing. If, if someone isn't physically hurting you, but they're sending you letters, they're watching you, they're, they're walking behind you, it, it's easy to, to think it's not a terribly serious crime. But it's absolutely terrifying to, to live in fear of what might happen and to know that someone is watching your every move. And so that was very much a case of remembering the victims that I'd spoken to over the years and, and sort of putting their emotion into it, but not, not their stories. Um, mm. Let Me Lie is, a, is an interesting one because it, it, it is inspired by a case, uh, not a case I worked on, but a, a crime that made the headlines around the world and absolutely fascinated me because it was such an extraordinary case. But I can't, uh, I can't talk about it, as you know, because um, if I told you what the case was, it would spoil at least one of the twists. But it, it, it made me think again about the, the story behind the headlines. And so I wanted to know what impact that had had on the family and how would that feel if, if that happened to, to me. Mm. So let's go, uh, go back to um, I Let You Go because you, you touched on wanting to understand how the um, protagonist in that would feel mm. having lost a child. And obviously that was something that you knew only too well. I, yeah, I did, although not, not, circumstances, at, that, yeah, not at that time. So the, the hit and run in, in Oxford had happened in 2000 when I was a really junior police officer, had no, no direct involvement in the case, but it was one of those jobs that we all had some involvement. You know, we, we, we were all aware of it. We were all speaking to people that you know, knew something, had seen something, um, that knew the family. And so that was kind of ticking along, I suppose, in, in my mind all the time. Uh, and, I, and I remember meeting the, the mother of this child and, and just thinking, how, how can you survive the, the, the loss of a child? It, it, was, it just seemed so traumatic. And I was 21 at the time um, and, and, and couldn't imagine it. And then 10 years, almost 10 years later, uh, our son died from meningitis. And I, and I thought about that mother again, and I, I realized that, of course, you, you do keep going. You, you have to, because there, you know, you, perhaps you've got other children, or you've got you know, a family, you've, you've, you've got other reasons that, that make it important to keep getting up each day, and to keep taking a breath, and to keep putting one foot in front of a, another until you don't have to make an effort to do that anymore. But what I realized is that it it changes you. Losing a child um, changes you in so many ways. I, I'm not the same person that I was 12 years ago. I, I think about things differently. I have different relationships. I make different decisions. And so I wanted to explore through fiction what that would be like and how that might change a character. I find that really interesting that you 
chose to write about that when it's such a, um, a painful thing for you and sitting writing day after day about that. I mean, how did you find that experience? I, 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 found, I, mean, I did find it painful, but I, I found it actually tremendously cathartic. I, I think I'm, I'm very bad at acknowledging my own grief. And so I, I very intentionally don't let myself do it. I can sit here in front of you and I can talk about it, but there's a kind of a layer between what I'm saying and and what's really, you know, what's really in my heart about it. And that layer is a, is a protective layer, a shield for me, because I know that if I start thinking about it, if I access what's in my, my heart and in my head, I, I fall apart, um, and I fall apart for a day or two days or however long it takes. And so what writing does is, is writing gives me that, that layer, that shield, that means I can explore all sorts of things, in, in that case grief, but with that little layer of protection that means it doesn't hurt. But did you have to write that book as your first one to work through that, do you think? I think it was, I think I Let You Go was, was more about the, it was about the collision of those two things, that the loss of a child and, and this, this particular hit and run case. Um, and if I'm honest, it was also about an absolute belter of a twist that I wanted to see if I could pull off. And, and when I spoke to my agent about it, when, when we, we first, um, first got together, she said, you know, what you're trying to do in this book, I don't know if it's possible to do that to a reader. If it is possible, this, is, this could be really exciting, but you know, I don't know if, if it's even possible. Unfortunately, it, it was, but that was sort of the driver behind that book. Um, I keep coming back to writing about grief. I, I think it is probably a theme that will crop up again and again in, in my writing. Um, it, it is the it's the other side of, of love. We, we, we only grieve if we've loved. And so the, the two emotions are, are completely intermeshed. And I can't really imagine writing a book that didn't look at one or other or both of them. Do you enjoy the sort of story behind the stories? Do you, I mean, when, when your books are, are sold, it's very much along the lines of former police officers, so on, so, so that your story comes um, as ballast and, and, and drive. Do you like that? I know. I don't know how, how much longer I can, you know, bearing in mind I haven't been a police officer now for years. Um, I, I, I'm not sure whether in 20 years I'll still be sitting on a stage going, you know, when I was a police officer <laughs> for five minutes back in the, in the 2000s. Um, I, I, I don't mind it. Um, it, it's a peculiar thing. You've, you've written a book. The book is the product. Uh, if I buy any other kind of product, you know, if I, if I buy a, a water jug, I'm, I'm not given the story of the producer behind it. Um, it, it. Unless, I suppose, it's one of those sort of, you know, artisan products where, where sometimes the story is, is part of why, why you buy something. I, I don't know if it makes a difference to readers. Perhaps it... it confirms that there's some authenticity to it. Um, I, it's just bec it's become part of being a writer. It's not a part that I anticipated, um, but I, you know, I, I like it. I like talking to readers, and I'm quite comfortable sharing my story. Mm. So we've talked a little bit about Murray. Let's talk about Anna. Mm. Where did she come from? How, how do you go about creating a character like Anna? Anna, so, so Anna, we, we meet Anna on the day, on the anniversary of her mother's uh, suicide. Both her parents have, have taken their own lives and she receives an anonymous note that suggests that the suicides aren't quite what they seemed. Um, and so she, she sets out to, to prove what she always believed, which is that her parents were, were murdered. And Anna came from the same place that all my, my women characters come from, which is that they are all ordinary people. And, and I'm very, very keen on writing about ordinary women because I just think they're far more interesting than women with, you know, special powers or, or um, uh, you know, working in, in, I don't know, spy agencies. I, I, like, I like the fact that ordinary women are doing what they do every day, not thinking they're particularly special, not thinking they're particularly strong, and then they're put in a 
position of crisis and they draw on these incredible reserves. And you think women more so than men, not in terms of your writing, but do extraordinary things? Well, I, no, I think there are, you know, there are lots of men doing incredible things. I think it's simply that, and there is, of course, an International Men's Day as well. We're, we're not discriminatory. Uh, I think what it is is that for too long we haven't noticed the incredible things that women have been doing. We haven't been celebrating them. And so what we're doing now is, is you know, giving those women a, a voice. And so I suppose I am more likely to be celebrating them and writing about them because I feel we need to redress the balance a little bit. Mm. So these ordinary people, um, what leads them into, your, into, the, into the plots is the choices that they make. I get the impression that you're not a huge believer in, in people being born good or evil. No, not at all. I'm, I firmly believe that we all occupy that slightly blurry area between good and bad and depending on the path that we choose or the path that is chosen for us, we can very easily slide into either side. Mm. Even sort of real life criminals, the sort of Myra Hindley's Ian Brady's? Well, I think, I think there's a real distinction between criminality and evil and, and there are undoubtedly a very small percentage of criminals who have uh, some some form of evil in in their mind, um, and that I think is less than about uh, about the, the choices they take. Um, but often, when you look into those those hideous hideous cases, you discover that those people were abused as children, that that they had had violence and evil meted towards them. Um, and, and that has, has led them to, to <clears throat> take the path that they have. And when you were practicing police officers, did you, I mean, did you ever look into somebody's eyes across that interview room and think, actually, you are evil? A, a couple of times. Um, and, and they only ever fell in, in particular categories of, of criminals. And so they would invariably be um, sex offenders or domestic violence offenders, uh, where I felt that there was no redemption. That I, I, I couldn't see that person ever actually crossing over to be to be good again. Mm. Um, but you know, I hope I hope I'm wrong. I, I have I have huge faith in human nature and its ability to be resilient and and to change. And uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in in rehabilitation. Mm. And that was part of your motivation for going in to start with was it into the police for force? joining the police yeah, yeah absolutely it was it was about making a difference and uh, and specifically make making a difference sort of at a um, at a level where I could make real change and so wanting to get promoted was was never about sort of you know wanting to to be a boss or wanting to have lots of fancy things on, on my shoulder and my hat it it was because there were areas of policing that I just I didn't feel were working and although you can do an awful lot of good from the front line you can do some really great things um, from you know behind a desk and so now that you're out of it and you've got the the perspective what do you think needs to change gosh how long have we got <laughs> um, I don't like to get political in events um, but if I said the government that might sum it up <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of talk in, in the UK about reduced police numbers and the effects that that's having. Do we want to talk about that or not really? I mean, it, very briefly, because these guys are here to talk about books rather than, than policing, and, and I'm, I'm not a, a policing expert, um, that there were too few resources when I was in the police, and there are far fewer now. Mm. I, the, the, one of the last jobs that I did in the police was work on a, a restructuring project to lose 65 million from the police force budget. Uh, and so we slashed and burned, and we took out every possible job we, we could, um, and, and we saved 65 million. I don't know how much they've had to cut since then, but it's an awful lot more. And you can only spread a resource so thinly. You know, in, in London, we've, we've got horrific problems with knife crime right now. And it, it's not a huge leap to think that actually that, that is connected to the fact that they know there are no 
police officers around. They know there aren't the resources to, to, to catch them, to stop search them. There certainly aren't the resources to put into education to make these young people understand that carrying a knife is, is going to have severe consequences, you know, not just in terms of imprisonment, but in terms of the, the risk of loss of life. Mm. So the motivation, you've been clear about that, for, for going into the police and making a difference. What difference do you think your books make? That's the only bit I miss about policing. I'm, I'm asked a lot about whether I miss being a police officer, and the only thing I miss is that I, I don't do that anymore. I don't get to make a difference. I don't get to change anyone's life, whether it's you know, a single person's life or, or a community or, or, or a country. And that's really tough. But do you not think you get to change people's perspectives? I, make people think? No, it, it feels arrogant to, to suggest that it might change someone's perspective. I mean, I, I would like to think that um, I might provoke some, some thought. Well, but some empathy. That would be perhaps. nice. I, you know, if, if, if that's the case, if people read my books and, and feel a little differently at the end, then, then I think that's great. Um, but you know, I, I, write, I write to entertain. I, I, I write books that will hopefully take you to a, a different place. And certainly if I manage to shock you or surprise you, then I've done my job. Mm. Have you very deliberately not written series? And can you see that you might write a series in the future? I'm, I'm really in awe of people who write series. And so I, I look at crime authors um, like uh, Mark Billingham and Ian Rankin and, and Val McDermott and their long-running series, and, and I just don't know how they hold it all in their head. Um, the, uh, sometimes I'm quite jealous of them because when you write a series and you go on to the next book, you've already got your world and your characters, and so you can just dive straight into the story. Whereas every time I start a book... I'm starting from scratch and I've got to build a new cast of characters and a new setting. So it's quite tempting, but I, I haven't... I think you've got to have a character that you want to live with for a really long time because if you want to live with them, then there's a good chance readers will. And until I met Murray... I never wanted to do that with any character. So, so Murray is the only character that I can see me coming back to at some point and writing about. Mm, mm. Murray's interesting. And, uh, there is in, in my copy, there's an extra um, chapter, which is lovely. Oh, yes. Um, which doesn't fit directly into the plot. But I wonder whether... Is that, a, is that a tool that you use as a writer to sort of write backstory or to write little snippets of, of putting them in a different situation in order to understand that character yeah, more. Yeah, so, so the extra, so, so we meet Murray in, in the book when he's, um, I don't know, 60-ish, um, 62, 63, and that the extra chapter in the book is when he must be in his 20s and when he meets his wife Sarah for, for the first time and, and Sarah has borderline personality disorder and so she, she has a, a very difficult life and, and they're a very, very strong couple together, um, not just in spite of it but because of it. Um, I don't tend to write, so I wrote that chapter specifically for, for that book. I don't write these extra scenes because frankly 100,000 words is more than enough. I don't want to be <laughs> writing any more than I have to. Um, but I definitely think them. And so that was a scene that I, I knew, I, I knew they'd met like that. Uh, and um, it, it was a real joy to, to write it. So, so if I did do something else with Murray, I, I would go back um, and, uh, and write about him and, and Sarah a few years earlier. Mm, okay. Let's get the microphones out, if we may. Our lovely volunteers have got them. So if you've got a question, do pop up your hand. And it can be about anything that we talked about so far or anything that anything we haven't talked all. about anything at all. Hi, Claire. Um, Hi. I was just wondering, why borderline personality disorder? Do you know what? I don't, I don't really know, is, is the answer. I, um, I always used to think it was slightly pretentious when authors talked about their characters kind of taking over um, but actually it, it, they really do and so when I was I was thinking about Murray and the way I build my characters is I just spend a lot of time daydreaming for for several weeks um, so I take lots of walks and stare out of the window and go swimming and just sort of think and Murray had a wife who who had who had borderline personality disorder and they um, when I was in the police I 
I met lots and lots of people with, with different sorts of um, mental health problems. And I, I, again, a little bit like the sort of the, the way I think people cross over from you know, good and bad and, and there's a gray area. I don't think there's sort of a big distinction between, between being mentally ill and mentally healthy. There's a, there's a very big area in the middle and most of us in, inhabit that and sort of sway between the two sides. Um, and what I wanted to do was write... I wanted to write about borderline personality disorder, but it not to be a plot device. I didn't want it to be... It's actually not part of the story at all, except for the fact that it has an impact on who Murray is and how he cares. I mean, his, his wife has, has made several attempts at self-harm and to take her own life. And so in that respect, it's a motivator when he comes to work with Anna to investigate her parents' suicides. But actually, it was more about showing that here's a couple that have a really healthy, really strong, happy relationship. Um, and oh, by the way, you know, one of them happens to have a, a mental health issue. There's a question here. Yes, presumably as a police officer, you've written one or two incident reports in your time. How difficult did you find it to move from condensing the maximum information and the minimum number of words to spreading that out over 100,000 words? Good question. Yeah, question. Um, obviously, none of my incident reports were fictional. I just need to make that <laughs> absolutely clear. Um, I think the only creative thing I ever wrote was an overtime form, so I'm fairly, um, <laughs> fairly beyond reproach. Um, it, it's actually not very different at all. So they, I, I don't think I ever did worry about the number of words, and so I, my, my reports were always quite quite long. I, uh, I treasured for a number of years um, a letter from a barrister commending me on my report writing and my, my storytelling. Um, I, I really enjoyed it and, and the process feels very fam familiar because I, I was finding the story and, and when a victim tells you what's happened to them, they don't give it to you in a nice neat story. They don't give you a, a beginning, middle and an end. They start at the end and then they go back to the beginning and they flit around and, and they tell you things that aren't relevant and they don't tell you things that are. And so your job is, is to pull out that story and to find the story that the witnesses tell and to find the forensic story and the CCTV story and all these different threads of a story and to present them in a compelling way so that as a, an audience, uh, you know, readers or a court um, are, are going through this court file, there's a logical order, it's building a story and it's, you know, coming to, to an end. Well, that's exactly the same process as, as writing a novel. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm perhaps adding a little bit more colour, a little bit more backstory um, and I'm making the whole thing up. Good question. You say your husband is a police officer. Does he have much or any input into your novels? Rob, do you ever help with my books? <laughs> it's actually really annoying because, um, every, because he's very... Um, he will tell me exactly how it should happen. And so I will... Um, I'll ask him a question about... Uh, you know, roads policing or about firearms or whatever. And he'll say, uh, no, but it, it wouldn't work like that. You know, it, it couldn't happen. And I say, yeah, yeah but I, I need it to happen. So how can I, you know, how can I make it happen just on this one again? No, it just wouldn't happen. I know, but I need it to happen. So we have a lot of conversations like that. Um, the, the, the area where he's really helpful actually isn't, isn't around police um, procedure or, or uh, anything like that. It's in just... Um, just letting me talk. So quite often, I will be at a kind of point of crisis where the book's not working, I'm a terrible writer, I'm never going to have a book published again, it's all going wrong, you know, my life is awful. And um, he will very patiently pour me a gin and tonic or, uh, you know, make me a cup of tea and just let me rant and rail and occasionally remind me that, you know, this is exactly how I felt at exactly this stage in the last book and it's, you know, exactly how I'll feel at this stage in the next book. Um, or I might try and talk through a plot problem and he'll listen and presumably be sort of preparing to, to make some suggestions and by the time I've talked it through, I'll go, oh, Actually, I know how to solve it now. Okay, I'm fine now. So he's very good at just being a, a sort of sounding board. What stage is it where you think, oh my goodness, I can't do this? Is it always the same yeah, place? Yeah, it's, uh, it's always in the middle. Um, so uh, in, in, in 
um, in the Great British Bake Off, they talk about cakes having a soggy bottom. That's what to avoid. And, and I have a saggy middle, um, okay. both sadly, both in real life and in, in my books. And so when I get to the saggy middle, so it'll be anywhere between about 40,000 words and about 60, 70,000 words. Uh, I just, it, it's like... Um, it's like trying to walk through a swimming pool filled with treacle. And I just, I just can't get any further forward. It's incredibly frustrating. And it happens every time. And, and I, just, you know, I just have to push through and, and worry about it afterwards. Um, and then I also fall into what I like to call the pit of despair when I get my edit notes Sounds back. Sounds cheery. It's very cheery living with me, yeah. Um, <laughs> so when my editor sends my notes back... I will always cry uh, privately, not in front of her because I'm a professional. Um, in front of her, I'll go, okay, that's great. Thanks so much. For you. It's really insightful. And then I'll shut the door and have a, a really good cry um, and, and just kind of just wallow in the pit of despair for about 24 hours. Um, and then I, I read the notes again and I think, well, yeah, yeah, actually, she's got a point. And yeah, yeah, that's right. And yes, and oh, yes, yes. You know, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but that's absolutely it. Um, and then I'll sort of be halfway out of the pit of despair and I won't touch it for a couple of days. And then by the third time I read the notes, actually, I feel quite positive about it. And then I'm off again. And the second draft, actually, I quite enjoy mm. because I'm fixing all the things that are wrong. But it is a bit emotional but being it's a trusting writer. that process isn't it and knowing that you will come out of it the other end it is and i keep meaning to to sort of keep a bit of a diary so that i can actually look back and go oh right yeah there's the pit of despair so i should be heading there in about three weeks time. almost like plotting it <laughs> yeah 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 and um, because you did have um with your with your second book you had massive second book itis i did you? yeah yeah the difficult second book is is very much a thing um and it, it, was, it was just really hard because I, um, I think I tried to write it too fast and as I was writing it, really good things were happening with the first book. And so it was selling in all these countries that you know, I'd never heard of and the, the kids would say, oh, where's that? And I'd go, well, you go and see if you can find it on a globe and I'll tell you if you're right. Um, and every time we sold to a new country, I'd feel happy but I'd feel slightly sick about the the pressure of having to do the same thing again and so I wrote this book and it was it was fine you know it's quite it's it's quite a good book and in fact my editor now we've talked about it recently and she said you know if it came in on, on its own I, I'd probably buy it so it's fine it's not a terrible book but it it wasn't as good as I let you go and and I knew that and she knew that and you know, we had, a, we had a choice. Either we put out a book that was sort of, you know, an A, but not, not an A+, plus, um, and risked the, the fallout when reviews were bad and, and people, you know, felt that I couldn't do it again. Um, or I threw away nine months' work, 100,000 words written twice, um, and started again. And so I started again, which seemed like the most sensible option um which hurt a bit pit of despair um but actually the pit of despair was was quite a brief sojourn on that occasion because i had already had the idea for what i thought was going to be book three and so i promoted book three um and uh, and as soon as i started writing i see you which is is this book about uh, routine and, and stalking it was such a strong hook such a strong idea that actually it, it it was fairly straightforward to write and I didn't think about the pressure and I stopped read. I haven't read reviews actually since that time. So I'll read a review if it's in a newspaper or if someone physically sort of hands it to me or, or sends me a link, but I don't go looking for reviews. You know, they, they say eavesdroppers never hear good of themselves mm. and, and I think it holds very true for authors. So I, I don't go looking on Amazon or Goodreads or anywhere else. I, and I just concentrated on writing the best story I could, which is what I've done ever since. Do you find that when you were in the police uh, that you were restricted by what you could do so that now that you can write, you're, it's much freer? Yes. Yes. It's lovely <laughs> to be asked that question because I absolutely felt like that. I felt, and, and I think I only really realised this once I'd left, but to a certain extent when I was still in the police, I felt quite creatively stifled. And 
I, I've always been really, really intrigued and passionate about communications, uh, whether that's with the public or internally. And, and I found there were things I wanted to do that the structure just didn't enable me to do. And, you know, probably quite rightly, there is a limit to how much contact you, you can realistically have with, with a victim or, or a witness. You know, you do actually have to crack on and investigate the job, not sit having cups of tea with them and making sure they're okay. Although, you know, that's something that would, you know, would be quite beneficial. Um, so it is really nice now to know that yeah, I, I can write what I want um, and, and that I've got that, that freedom and, and that um, uh, free speech, I suppose. I, I actually started writing when I was still in the police. I, was, I, I wrote a blog called More Than Just a Mother and I was writing about all sorts of, of things and I, uh, because I was still a police officer, I wrote under a pseudonym because I was a little bit nervous about... We had a quite a, a scary chief constable at the time. Uh, I don't know why I'm whispering. She's not here. Um, <laughs> and I was slightly nervous that she, she might not like me writing. You know, I wasn't writing about the police, but I was, I was writing about relationships and, and sex and grief and having babies and all sorts of things that perhaps didn't sit very well with also being a public order commander. Um, and so I, I kept the two things separate. And then once I'd left the police, I sort of came out uh, as me, which was really nice. Did she mind? She's never said. Yeah. Um, I, I'm still really scared of her. It's, it's a bit like seeing your head teacher again and, and calling them miss, you know, yeah. even though you're an adult now. <laughs> I think we've got time for one more question. Who's going to... Hi, Claire. Can you tell us about book four? When is it coming oh, out? Oh, I'd love to. Yes, thank you. Uh, so book four comes out on June the 25th and it has no police officers in it, which is, has been quite a, um, <clears throat> a strange thing for me because it's meant I've actually had to do some research. Uh, so I'm now even more in awe of people who write crime novels who have never been police officers, because I realise how difficult it is. So it's about a, uh, a couple, it's about parents who disagree on the um, medical care that their ill son needs to have, and about how they make their respective choices, and how they live with the consequences of the life that that gives both of them. Um, so it's, um, it, it doesn't have police in it, doesn't have a crime in it, it has uh, a legal process and it has a lot of tense twists and turns and emotion um, and it's the book that I am the most proud of and the most excited about. So I'm really, really looking forward to sharing it with readers in June. Fantastic. Claire, thank you so much for a wonderfully insightful and, and entertaining hour. Thank, um, thank you. you so much for coming out and for some great questions. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm thank signing. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.